The Money Guy podcast is hosted by Brian Preston, and Brian Preston is a partner with Preston and Cleveland Wealth Management. Preston and Cleveland Wealth Management is a registered investment advisory firm regulated by the Securities and Exchange Commission in accordance and compliance with securities laws and regulations. Preston and Cleveland Wealth Management does not render or offer to render personalized investment or tax advice through the Money Guy podcast. The information provided is for informational purposes only and does not constitute financial, tax, investment, or legal advice. It's Brian Preston, the Money Guy, restoring order to your financial chaos, retirement, investing, taxes. You've got financial questions, he's got financial answers. It's Brian Preston, the Money Guy. Welcome everyone out there. This is going to be a big one today. I think you guys usually give me the most positive feedback after we do an investment podcast. And that's exactly what we're going to do today. We're going to talk about the ABCs of asset allocation. Since I am a wealth manager, um, I obviously have a background in this area and I think I can shed the most light usually, usually when we get into investments. Just to bring you up to speed for all my new listeners, the people who got the iPods for Christmas have discovered the great world of podcasting and want to tune in to the Money Guy podcast. We are here to restore order to your financial chaos. We've been around now for over a year. This is the podcast you're going to come to to hear the advice that all the other financial podcasters will be talking about in three weeks to two months. It's not uncommon. I call it the echo effect of um, listening to this show. I know you hear other talk radio shows talk about that, but I've noticed it with this show, and I've actually had other podcasters comment that they've used my show content to help fuel their podcast. Now, I go turn them in, get them in trouble, um, and embarrass them, but they know who they are, and um, good luck with listening to this and presenting this information. I also want to say a few quick words before we start talking about asset allocation about emails. I always provide in the podcast the way to contact the Money Guy show. This is, um, and I always provide my email address, which is brian at money-guy.com. You can also go check us out on the website, money-guy.com, and even sign up for our automatic newsletter that comes out through email um, to just tell you what's going on with the show. But I want to talk about email specifically. You guys have been writing a lot of emails, and um, I've responded to a number of them. I've even presented a few of them on the podcast show. But I do feel very guilty, and I, that's why I want to address it here, is that a lot of you have written just outstanding emails. I mean, you've put a lot of time in it, a lot of heart. And I know you probably think I'm the biggest jerk because I do not respond to all emails. It's just impossible. Please recognize this is a hobby. I'm not generating any material money from this. It does not pay any bills, really. If anything, it's an outflow from buying all the equipment and everything else we've got going on. So I, if I don't respond to your email, I do try to work it into the show notes as well as what the, it drives what I focus the podcast special on and the financial chaos topic. And that's exactly what happened with today's show. A lot of you had sent me emails asking about what's, what's the difference between what makes a large company a large company stock, you know, what does that really mean definition-wise. Also, what's the difference between value and growth? These are type of questions that I've gotten in emails, and I haven't responded directly, but I am going to hopefully answer all those questions through this podcast today. So let's jump right in. The ABCs of asset allocation. Now, it's been a good while since I did a, a, an investment podcast and specifically about the investments of uh, the basics of investing. And that's what we're going to do with this whole asset allocation because that's truly the backbone of good investing. And today I'm going to load you up with a ton of information. If you're the lazy guy that doesn't want to have 
to write down what I'm about to read out to you or, or, or present to you, I, I highly recommend you do go out to our website, sign up with your email address so you can um, go get these notes emailed to you with all these definitions as well as an outline for what we're talking about on the show. It's a great way to get a little cheat sheet of what we're talking about instead of having to take notes by hand. Um, that's the way I go through life. I really, if I don't have to write and lift up a pen or type up something that's already done for me, it's great. So first, before we get into the special, um, the, the, the specifics, let's talk about terms that you need to understand concerning asset allocation. When we talk about, and some of these are going to be very simple, and some of these get a little deeper into it, but I, I'm going to give you both because remember when you come to the show, I remember, I try to focus this on, um, both the people who are just now starting out in investing as well as the people who have been doing it their whole life and are just trying to hone in their skill set. But um, one of the main uh, terms that you hear all the time is domestic stock. And when I talk about domestic stocks, I'm talking about stocks and companies that are within the United States. That's pretty obvious. Market capitalization of U.S. stocks, when we talk about the cap, you always hear people talk about large cap stocks, mid cap stocks, small cap stocks. Those are market capitalizations, meaning that how big are the companies? So I went and pulled from Morningstar because one of the best research companies out there is Morningstar. That's what I do a lot of my research for my firm through, and they um, they rate things through a style and a size class. You know, you see that kind of that that cube with the um, nine boxes, and they'll have a, a value side, a growth side, a blend in the middle, and then they have it broken down by large cap, mid cap, and small cap. So what does that mean when, when somebody says a large cap stock? Uh, that's a great question whenever I do 401K meetings and I have a plan participant that'll say, hey, what in the world do you mean when you say large cap stock? So the definition of large cap is a, any U.S. company, can be international, but I'm focusing this specifically on U.S. stocks. Um, a U.S. company with a market capitalization greater than $11 billion, meaning that if you go look at the value of their stock, if you take the number of shares by the value, I mean by the price of their shares of stock, you can multiply those two numbers, and that's their market capitalization. And any company that's over $11 billion, billion is considered a large company. And those companies are the household names. Those are the Walmarts, the GEs, the Home Depots, the Coca-Cola, the Pfizer, you know, all the things that everybody, you know, that has listened to the podcast recognizes these companies that I'm talking about. When I talk about mid-cap stocks, these are companies that fall into that $2 billion to $11 billion market capitalization area. And these are typically companies that you might recognize some of the names because you deal with their products, but they're not as big as the ones mentioned in the, in, you know, in the other asset class, the large cap class. And a good example of a mid-cap stock is like your H&R Blocks, where you've probably heard of H&R Block, the tax preparation company. Um, but they're not as big as a Walmart or something uh, that tune. Small companies or small cap stocks are companies with market capitalization rates that are below two billion. You're probably not going to recognize the the name of these companies unless you specifically use their product, or maybe they have a plant or um, their headquarters in your hometown. You know that that's that's a pretty common thing. So there's a gazillion small companies out there. Um, you know, a large number of mid-cap, and then there's not so many large companies that have market capitalization rates over $11 billion. But one of the funny things, if you actually look at the numbers, you'll see that 70% of, um, of, of what makes up the, um, the assets 
in, you know, that are researched and covered, if you actually were trying to figure out how do you, like a pizza pie, how much was in large cap versus mid cap and small cap, you'll see 70% of the marketplace typically is large cap, 20% goes into mid cap, and then about 10% of the market is in um, small companies, if you're just talking about from a level of assets. So that kind of is um, a breakout of what the capitalization rates are, because I know I constantly am talking about on these podcasts large companies or large cap, mid cap, small cap, and um, I want to give you a definition of that so you could understand that. When we talk about international stocks, obviously these are companies that are based outside of the United States. And some examples that you might not even realize are international companies is companies like Nestle. Nestle, if you're familiar with their hot chocolate, their candy, um, Nestle is actually a, a company based out of Switzerland. Um, if you look at Lafarge, which does a lot of the concrete, um, cement, when I talk to my, all my construction friends that are in development and so forth, they always get mad because I, I always mess it up. I either call something cement that should be concrete or concrete which should be cement. I don't know. There's, if you're in building, you know what I'm talking about. And you get frustrated when people use the wrong terminology. But Lafarge is a French company. You look at other companies like GlaxoSmithKline, um, which is in the healthcare medical industry, you know, the drugs and so forth. They are actually a United Kingdom company. Uh, over in Europe, and then you got Mitsubishi, which I'm sure everybody's familiar is a Japanese company. So these are all international stocks, meaning they're headquartered outside the United States. But yet, as you can imagine, most of these large companies, even companies in the United States like Coca-Cola and, and Walmart, GE, and so forth, are global. You know, they're they're doing stuff outside the United States. But when I talk about it, I'm talking about where they're headquartered. So international is outside the United States. Domestic means it is within the United States. So now that we know about market capitalization and, you know, domestic versus international investments, let's talk about value versus growth. Because it's not uncommon that you see um, some stocks are classified as value stocks and then other stocks are classified as growth stocks. Um, value stocks, and this is all, and I'm going to give you some of these definitions, and I got, I pulled some of these definitions from about.com if you go out to their website. But value stocks are typically underpriced by the market for, for reasons that have nothing to do with their business model. Often a stock's only sin is not being a part of the current hot sector. Typically they have a low price to earnings ratio, also known as the PE ratio. You hear that all the time when you're talking about its price to earnings ratio. Um, they also have more equity than debt on their balance sheets, and current assets are typically twice their current liabilities. For an example of a value stock, I went out to Morningstar and I pulled up um, one of the biggest large cap value and one of the best large cap value mutual funds is the Dodge and Cox stock fund. And I said, well, what's their top holding so I can get an idea of what a value manager considers a large cap value stock. And their number one holding was Hewlett Packard, um, and it had a PE of 23.1 according to Morningstar. So then we flip it over to the other side and we have growth. Um, stocks that have projected or historic strong growth rates, they have strong um, return on equity and strong earnings per share growth. Um, these are examples of growth companies. And so doing the exact same thing I did on the, on the value side, I, I went and pulled a a large cap growth mutual fund, and the one I chose was Fidelity's Contra Fund. That's a very popular fund that a lot of people are familiar with. Um, I went to go pull what their top holding was, and you know what it was? It was actually Google. And Google, as we all know, has shot through the roof through the price. And um, But their price to earnings, and this is very typical for 
um, growth companies is that, that sometimes this is why they're not value versus growth is that his Google's price to earnings ratio is actually 61.7. So I think that's a pretty good representation of the difference between growth and value. Google, people are not buying it um, because of it's cheap. They're buying it because they think that the company's going to continue to grow um, and find in, inventive ways to make even more money. And, and that's why they're willing to buy a company that's trading at close to $62. Um, the share price is 62 times what the actual earnings are. So that's something that, that you've got to count on. You've got to have a lot of faith that the company's going to continue to grow to be willing to pay that much of a premium. Same thing with um, going back and looking at Hewlett-Packard. 23. Now, 23 is not what I would consider a cheap, cheap stock. So for value, but because um, you want to, you know, historically, when you're looking at price to earnings, you know, 15 is what you, you heard a lot of people talking about. But we haven't been at those levels in quite some time. But 23 is not outrageous either. And you can imagine, but comparing 23 to 61 on price to earnings, it, it's a world of difference. Um, well, now that you understand the difference between growth and value, you need to know in between those because Morningstar also has a category called blend. And as you can imagine, that's it's kind of a company that fits in between those two thresholds. They're not exactly a value company, but they're also not a growth company like a Google type, so they kind of fit into the blend. And um, that, that's the three categories that Morningstar uses, value, blend, and growth. And you, a good way to, to figure out what a company is, because who wants to go out and do all these calculations and look at price-to-earnings ratios, a good, cheat, easy way to go cheat the system is just go into Morningstar.com, type in the symbol for the mutual fund or the stock that you're trying to research, and they will show you that style box so you can see if it's a large company, a mid-sized company, a small company, but they'll also show you whether it's a value, blend, or large company growth or type of growth fund. So these are all ways that you can go use as tools to figure out what type of investment that you're trying to buy into. Um, now that we know a few of the terms, we need to talk about how do you make them work for you. First, I want to break this out because I think – Something we have to talk about is, is where you are in the whole saving game. If you're brand new to investing and you don't have a lot of money invested and saved at this point, your nest egg is less than $100,000, I think you have to be careful. You don't want to go jump into to buying all these different asset classes when you're just now starting out maybe have $5,000. The biggest thing you've got to worry about when you're starting out is making sure that you're watching the fees that you're paying for your investments. And probably one of the easiest ways to do that when you do start out and you're below $100,000 is to buy a good fund-to-fund type of investment. When I talk about fund-to-fund, I'm talking about a mutual fund that might have some diversification built into it. And a good one that I, that I figured I'd throw out there for you guys is Fidelity's 4-in-1 index. The, stock, the, the mutual fund symbol for that is FFNOX. And what that fund does is it buys 55% into the S&P 500 index, 15% into the international index, 15% into small company into a small cap index, and then 15% into the bond index. So you can see you have a nice little basket of asset allocation there without having to go buy a lot of funds. And it's very simple. But And the costs are dirt, dirt cheap. I believe it's less than 0.10% a year of internal expenses. You compare that to the average portfolio that's charging 1.5% for mutual funds, you can see it's 15 times cheaper um, than most mutual funds out there. So if you're under $100,000, 
don't get caught up in trying to do these big, um, extensive, complex asset allocations if you, when you might just need to be focusing on the savings part and putting it into one really good fund out there and helping it grow. Another fund I wanted to throw out there to you has a little more risk because it doesn't have any bond exposure like the Fidelity Fund, but still a very good fund, is the Vanguard Total Stock Index Fund. The symbol on that one is VTSMX. Um, like I said, these are both simple choices that can offer some basic diversification without paying any commissions, and, and they're practically free of any internal fees because they're so cheap, and that's what something you need to focus on when you are starting out. Now, for the people, the other side of the coin, the people who have been saving for a while, and I know there's many of you out there. I get your emails talking about where you are in life, and I, I kind of take a pride. I take a lot of pride in the fact that Money Guy listeners are a lot of you guys are the the the, the top of the pile at your your workplace and I, and that makes sense. I mean, you think about this. This is a brand new frontier of technology. Doing these iPod, doing this podcasting, and using your iPods and MP3 players. It makes sense that you guys are sharp, and that's why a lot of you are the CEOs, the controllers, um, top executives at a lot of the companies. I can see that when you send me the emails, and I and I, I'm very proud that that's the type of um, audience that I'm, I'm attracting. So for those that have been saving for quite some time and have built up some assets, let's talk about getting into this asset allocation game a little bit deeper. So um, the first thing, the basic asset classes that you're going to use in portfolio management include uh, you know, domestic stocks, which are those U.S. companies, You've also got international stocks, which are companies based outside the United States. You've got your fixed income, which are bonds. Commodities, which can include natural resources, oil and gas type stocks. Um, those type of holdings that are going to take advantage of um, you know, what's going on in the world and is inflation causing trouble. Uh, these are the type of things you want to look at when you're considering to investing in commodities. There's also real estate. In real estate, um, a lot of you are familiar with investing in domestic real estate, meaning real estate within the United States. But in the last two years, you've also seen a lot of mutual funds and other investments coming on board that offer you the opportunity to invest internationally in real estate. And maybe that's not such a bad thing because of our great run-up here in the United States with the creative financing products we've had, um, you know, that has driven a lot of the capital appreciation out there in real estate. If you missed the game on that and didn't make any money off real estate, maybe you can jump in on some of the international. But when I give you some exposure numbers here in a minute, you'll notice that real estate's kind of one of the lower numbers out there. So be careful because you don't want to be the one holding the bag by jumping in on the party too late. Um, another asset class that I use is absolute return strategies. Um, you also hear them being called hedge funds. And other strategies. And then, um, the last and the boringness of the, all of the asset classes is cash. Um, and buying cash equivalent type funds, money market CDs and, um, just checking in savings accounts. So let's talk about, and this is something you're probably not hearing on any of the other podcasts. What does a hypothetical asset allocation look like for somebody who has a moderate level tolerance of risk? Um, and I put together one, and, it, and, and the asset allocation for, and this is hypothetical, it knows nothing about you, this is just, um, I'm using it for illustration purposes, remember, you know, when it comes to your specific situation, be careful, because this is very broad, I'm, I'm painting with a very broad stroke here, it is by no means getting into the details of your life, and in other words, don't take this 
as advice strictly pertaining to you. You need to make sure you understand your own risk, your goals, and other things that do impact how you're going to handle your investments. But let's talk about a hypothetical person that can handle a moderate level of risk. And a person with that type of threshold and and understanding of their risk would probably have an allocation that would sound something like this. They might have 5% in cash and equivalents. They're going to have about 15% in fixed income and bonds. About 20% in those absolute return strategies or hedge funds because they're really fancy ways. Um, they, they, they perform a little differently than bonds, but they are an alternative to investing in straight stocks, meaning they hopefully will perform well when the stock market is having a bad time or maybe an, even in a recession. you got 37% in domestic stocks, meaning stocks within the United States. in international stocks, and then you've got about 3% in real estate, and then about 5% in commodities. So let's go over each of these asset classes and what you might want to do within these. Cash, cash is not sexy at all. It's pretty boring, and um, I'm not a big fan of people holding on to a ton of cash because let's talk about why the rich get richer and the poor do not get um, somehow level that playing field. And a lot of the reason is is that people who don't know any better will put a lot of value on cash. Um, it's not uncommon to see people who are very good savers but not very good at generating wealth because what they do is they lock in all their money into cash-type investments, and that's CDs, money markets, and things like that. And the reason you don't see a lot of rich people with tons of cash laying around is because cash really has no value behind it. It's not like the old days where you had um, gold locked up in Fort Knox that was the underlying value of your cash. It's not that way anymore. Now the government actually it just prints more money. I mean, it, it, it's the truth. It, they just when they need more money, they will go print. Now, sure, there's, there's a much there's a very complex currency system set up to how they release money and so forth. But I want you to understand, there's nothing that is pegging the value of your cash. It's kind of floating around out there, and it is um, controlled partially by how much cash is out, available out there in the marketplace. So you'll see people who are wealthy will have assets like real estate, um, uh, holdings in companies, um, stocks, bonds, you know, things like that. And they'll have a bunch of tangible assets that continue to appreciate in value. Meanwhile, cash um, can be hit by inflation and other things, and that's why you see the value of cash go down, while you see tangible products like real estate, the value of your stocks, your bonds, they're going to continue to go up because cash really has nothing behind it. So, But I'll tell you right now, with cash earning around 5% if you're in a good money market, um, there's nothing wrong with having about 5% of your assets in cash. It's not a bad time, even though it's a very um, unsexy product. Fixed income, which are bonds, we still have an inverted yield curve, which um, means that short-term rates are actually better than long-term rates, so you're not getting that premium for locking up your money for an extended period of time. So when that's the case, you typically want to stay around short-term products. But you remember we talked about maybe putting around 15% in that. Absolute return strategy, this class used to be reserved really for the wealthiest of individuals. You didn't see the common person able to invest in this, but now anyone can invest in this unique investment class through mutual funds. And it's gotten so popular that Morningstar has even added a new category called the long-short category um, to cover this type of investment. They actually do research and let you kind of know their thoughts on things. Um, Make sure, because there are many different funds in this asset class, 
make sure you pay attention to the um, the risk level of the investments because uh, you can really get into some volatile portfolios if you're not watching the risk. I like I prefer the more conservative funds with limited risk. They essentially act like bonds, but with um, a little more opportunity. Um, they will they can perform well whether the market's going up or down. Uh, it's just depending upon how good the manager is at interpreting where we are in a market cycle. So I do like um, absolute return strategies and hedge funds. Uh, also pay attention to the fees because I will tell you that some of these funds do have rather high fees. If you can go look at their historical performance, specifically go back and look at how they did in 2000, 2001, 2002, maybe they can justify some of their fees. But, um, you know, just make sure you're paying attention to what you're paying for some of these, these hedge funds and absolute return funds. Domestic stocks. Remember, domestic stocks, when I talk about those, these are your large cap, mid cap, and small cap exposure. You're going to want to probably have 50 to 70% of your exposure in this investment class in the large cap holdings. Um, large cap holdings, remember, I'm a big fan of index investing. You know, I am buying through exchange traded funds. And you say, well, why, why are you a big fan of indices buying the index funds or exchange traded funds? And the reason is, and I've said this numbers, numerous times in previous podcasts, is because if you take, there's really only about a thousand giant mega companies out there that we all know household names. But yet there are a gazillion people like myself that supposedly are telling you how to invest your money. And when we got the internet, we've got Bloomberg TV, we got MSNBC, we got newspapers. It is impossible, I feel like, to know anything more than anybody else or be any smarter than anybody else with the, with this few of companies out there. Like I said, there's a gazillion people like me, but yet only a thousand companies like this. So they're, they're watching them under a microscope. So if you know everybody's going to be on the same playing field, it's too efficient of a marketplace to have an advantage over anybody else, what should you be concerned about? The cost and fees that you're paying. Well, the lowest cost in this category is going to be in an index fund or an exchange-traded fund. So if you can't beat them through good management, you might as well get the best and lowest cost fund that you can get access to that investment class because that savings and fees is going to go right into your back pocket. So remember, large cap, you want to try to consider, at least my opinion is, you want to consider index funds and exchange-traded funds. Now, mid and small cap exposure is trickier because... In those, they're not as efficient, meaning that you might have a, you know, it's the exact opposite. You have a gazillion investments and only a few analysts out there looking at your stock. And I don't care how good your company is, if you don't have analysts looking at you, you're not going to get um, exposure and your stock price is not going to go up because there's not going to be a lot of demand out there. But um, it's hard to find good managers because the really good ones, they're so popular with investors because when somebody realizes you've got a good small cap manager, You'll see a lot of people run to, to go invest in them. Well, they're, they have limitations on how big they can get because they, they want to be able to go out and buy good investments. So it's not uncommon for good managers to close their doors to new investors very quickly. So it, it is a little bit harder, but I, I'm going to trust that you're going to be able to find something out there by using Morningstar and other research tools to find something. When we talk about international stocks, the lion's share of your investment will be in large European-type countries. Um, but you may also, you need to spice up your holdings. Not, not, don't go bet the farm on this, but you might want to spice up your holdings in international by going and looking at a few of the emerging marketplaces. You look at Asia and um, Latin America, they've had great opportunities in the last few years. Um, but you want to be very careful of the risk because remember, 
emerging markets are very, very volatile. It's not uncommon for them to go have huge fluctuations, but you can have opportunity to make great rates of returns. I'm a big fan of Asia right now, specifically if you look at how India is growing, um, and a lot of, and as well as other Asian com- countries. And the reason is, is if you think about, they have a high skill set. And I talked about this in the previous podcast. They have a very high skill set, but yet their labor costs are just extremely low compared to what's going on here in the United States. So if you go look at that, I think you're still going to see lots of opportunities in the future just because of their cost of labor is so much cheaper than what we can do things here in the States for. And you're going to see that opportunity continue to be there until their wages kind of push up over time. And I think you'll see it over time, but we're not there yet. Real estate, I've been calling for a pullback in real estate for the last two and a half to three years. Um, every year it proves me wrong, and it continues to go higher and higher, even though the valuations are through the roof. You still see everybody jumping on board real estate and, and REITs. But um, be careful there because you not want to have you don't want to really top the market and be left holding the bag. You can do that um, because we've had such a huge run up domestically. I don't think it's um, a bad idea to look partially at international real estate opportunities. Um, at a conference I was at last year, one of the managers was telling me that you know they've seen great opportunities in countries like Germany and so forth because they've loosened up and um, become a little more liberal with their lending capabilities internationally, kind of like what has driven a lot of the domestic growth here is because you saw a lot of people out there using unique products like arms, um, interest-only loans to go out there and buy um, real estate, and it, it drove up the prices in a lot of areas. So, um, But remember, I'm only recommending, according to this hypothetical asset allocation mix, about 3%. So be very careful how much you put there. Commodities, which are your oil and gas and natural resources, I said about 5%. And I think that there might be an opportunity there to go back into this area right now. If you'd asked me about six months ago, I'd have told you no because we had that huge run-up over the last two years. But we've watched oil and gas go down from $78 a barrel back when we had the Lebanon-Israel crisis last year to where now it's back in the low 50s. And... um if you go look at where the bottom probably is on oil and gas prices, a lot of the most optimistic people think that we're probably go, that we could go back down to the 40s a barrel, maybe low 40s to mid 40s a barrel. But you know, if you go look at what we've done historically, we just were at 78 dollars a barrel. So it seems like there's a lot more upside than there is downside. And I'm not willing to say that the world is stable enough that we're not going to see wild fluctuations in this asset class um, in the coming future. I, I think there's just too many things going on in the world with Iran, Iraq, um, as well as Venezuela hating our guts here in America. So I think you could see quite a bit of fluctuations in, in what's going on out there in the commodities price, uh, asset class, I should say. And also remember, it's not just oil and gas. You're also talking about natural resources, lumber, um, you know, cost of, you know, all kind of things for construction. It, it doesn't matter. And you can play off. You don't have to just buy into energy funds like the Vanguard Energy. You can also go look at T. Rowe Price New Era and other funds that have exposure to oil and gas, but also um, to other natural resources. So those are some of the asset classes and the way you can look at Asset allocation. I have thrown a ton at you. You probably want to go back and listen to this podcast maybe twice um, or subscribe to the, to, the, to the email newsletter that we send out just showing you the show notes 
Um, you can do that once again at the money-guy.com. We have the show notes out there on the website, plus you can get them emailed to you. And this is just my little primer on what you might want to consider when you're talking about asset allocation. I appreciate you tuning in. You guys have been tremendous on letting this show continue to grow. We are so close to reaching even record numbers higher than I would have ever anticipated. I think we'll be at 5,000 subscribers within the next year. It's amazing how fast this show is growing, and I could not have done that without you guys tuning in, listening to the show, telling your friends and family, and supporting us as much as you can. Please continue to do that. Leave us positive reviews on iTunes. That helps out more than you could ever realize. And um, until next time, may God bless you with good opportunity, wealth, family, and friends.